Some of you just couldn't do it without shaking hands, could you? <laughs> that second song you sang, by the way, Michael wrote that. It was pretty good, Michael. Thank you. He wouldn't tell you, so I did. All right. Um, if you go to your Bibles, if you have them with you, go to Romans chapter 9 or perhaps on your phone or your iPad. Pull it out that way. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles for you in the back of the auditorium. Pick one up when you leave this morning. Love for you to have a copy of that. Romans chapter 9. So a lot of people will ask over the course of this weekend, what was last weekend like? Like, how many people? And to save myself having tons of conversations in the hallway, um, a little over 1,200 people were here on Easter weekend and all heard the gospel, all heard the, the story of resurrection and what we have a responsibility to do to respond to it. And I share that detail with you specifically because I want to be praying for individuals that were here last weekend with you. And at the same time, I'm going to ask you to begin thinking right now of individuals who are in your life, whom you work with, maybe go to school with, perhaps are in your neighborhood or maybe in your own family, who are not yet in a relationship with Christ. And maybe that's heavy on your heart this morning. You've got family members who are not there yet. They don't yet understand who Jesus is or haven't surrendered to him. So I want to pray with you about that and about the individuals that were here last weekend and ask God that he would do a work in our heart this morning related to that issue. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the chance to be able to spend time in your word in such an intense way, a very deliberate way this morning. We set a time, aside time in our schedule to be here so that we would know you better and we would know better your claim upon us and your call upon our life in relation to that, Father, what you expect of us. And so we turn our thoughts to people that we know who may not know you. And we would readily admit there's times when we're really intimidated and it's not easy to talk about, but we've got friends and family who are far from you. And, and we desire, Father, that they would know you in the way that we know you. And so we pray for them right now. We pray specifically for individuals who may have been here last weekend that perhaps some responded, Father, and others who have not yet responded and not sure what to do with this. God, that you would move in their hearts this morning, that you would remind them even in this moment, this very hour, what they heard last weekend and continue to work upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, for the week ahead of us, we ask that you would use us in that same way that we would speak into the lives of individuals. So speak to us now through your word. Cause us to understand better why you moved Paul to write down the things that he did 2,000 years ago. Why is it relevant for us today, Father? Cause us to see that. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think back to chapter 1 of Romans, and by the way, you're going to be thinking back two years, all right? It was June of 2016 when we started our study in Romans. Maybe you already looked at your notes this morning, and it says part 61. And you might be new to New Hope, and you feel like, well, I missed out on the first half. Well, you can get caught up online, by the way. You just have to do like a binge, right? Just drink it all in, and, and yeah, okay, it's enough said about that. So you can look back at chapter 1, and you see this amazing statement that Paul made. And if you're familiar with Romans, you're familiar with the statement he said. He said, the power of God, the power of God is in salvation. The gospel, it exalts it. The way he said it is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But many people forget about the second part. He's got that phrase that's tagged on with it. He says, to the Jew first. And then he kind of drops that and just lets it lay there and doesn't pick it up again. 
And he hasn't yet shown us what in the world does he mean by that. And there's no mention of it again until now. So for our part, we've spent chapter after chapter after chapter talking about faith. It's by faith. It's by faith in Christ alone. Salvation is by faith in God alone. Well, this whole argument of salvation by faith alone demands an examination of the Jewish question. I'll come back to that thought in just a second. In chapter 8, we ended on this really high note. Paul's reaching this climax. You remember I described it as his crescendo. He just keeps building the orchestration bigger and bigger and bigger. God's got you. God's got you no matter what. So all the things that are working in your life, God works those together for good, even though it doesn't always feel like good. And he's foreknown you, and he's foreloved you, and he's predestined you, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We, we remember chapter 8, and we love it for those reasons. But what about the Jewish nation? God made those same promises to them. What about those people whom he said was chosen? They're separate from the entire world because they're so special. Did not God give the same commitment to those individuals? So Paul has to hit that head on, that fact that the Jewish nation as a whole has rejected Jesus. What does that reality say about the purposes of God? What do you do with that? Did God abandon them? He said he chose them. Did he abandon them? Are his promises incomplete? Well, over the next several weeks, I think you're going to find chapters 9, 10, and 11 absolutely some of the most fascinating passages in the Bible. You get to be a a bit of an archaeological detective with me as we sift through these things. The reason I say that is many people don't think that these three chapters are really connected with the book of Romans. They think that they were added in later. What I want you to see is that each of these chapters are unified with the rest of the book. Paul is not moving on to some unrelated subject. Throughout history, chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapter 11 have been treated as though Paul went off on some rabbit trail, as though he hit the pause button. And some would argue that the crescendo of chapter 8 actually bleeds over into chapter 12, and the two are seamless when they're put together. Well, that's true. If you left 9, 10, 11 out, 8 feeds perfectly into 12. It may feel like that, but here's what's going on. Paul's anticipating a question, and it's on the minds of many people. It's on the minds of people today, and it was on the minds of people at that time. If you say salvation is for the Jews also, Paul, and if you said it's first to the Jews, why did Israel reject Jesus? If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, why are most of them in unbelief? Well, Paul understood like you do this morning. He's got friends. He's got family, people in his neighborhood, co-workers, people he went to school with who didn't have a right understanding of God. They thought that it was about their works. They thought about it was the things that they did. They thought it was about their lineage, like Americans thinking that they're automatically Christian because they're born in a Christian nation. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Paul speaks to that issue in Romans 2. You might think back to Romans chapter 2 when we were there, but this is the way he said it in verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, meaning the letter of the law. I know many of you are church people. You're here the Sunday after Easter. And so you're church people. You know these things that neither physical actions nor physical lineage can save you. 
Those things actually become barriers to a a relationship with God because they give a false sense of security. The Bible is really clear that Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith and faith alone. And if you're wondering if you're a Gentile, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, okay? Gentile is not a derogatory term. If you weren't born Jewish, you're Gentile. It's just the two categories in the Bible. We know that we're not saved by our achievements. And that's really humbling to hear that. Because especially with every fiber of our American being, we're fiercely independent. We want to think that we've earned it. Well, the Jewish people, the ancient people were that same way. They they thought that they could make themselves more likable to God. And when Jesus came along and said, that's not about that. It's about a relationship with God the Father through me. When they heard that, they scorned that. They rejected that. And by rejecting that, they rejected their Messiah. And it's actually the dilemma of humanity. We know we're not right, but we want to be right. And so we work to make ourselves right. Well, that's where Paul's going with this argument in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. Now, just in case you're stuck on that question, did God's promises fail? I'm here to clarify for you this morning. God's promises have not failed. God's promises cannot fail. Amen? They can't. So he never promised to save every single Jew. Every individual on planet Earth is responsible for believing or not believing. In the end, you're going to see that God will save Israel. But that's for another story. First, what we have to do is let Paul show us his heart before he can show us his theology. So I ask you to go with me to chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. And this is the way he starts. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, if someone starts out a conversation by telling you that what they're about to say is not a lie, what does that make you want to do? Like, okay, what's coming? You have to understand that if someone starts out by saying, I'm not lying to you, you immediately think that what they're about to say is going to seem like it's incredibly fabricated. Case in point, my son Adam, when he um, had his driver's license not too long, probably a couple of years, he had uh, earned enough money that he bought his own car, and he wanted to go out on a a particular evening. It was wintertime. I think it was January, and he wanted to go see some friends in Williamston. We were living south of Williamston at that time. And Adam took off, and maybe 15 minutes after he left, he called me and said, Dad, I need help. I'm, I'm stuck and I said, Stuck, where are you? And he said, well, I'm, I'm on Lynn Road, and my car went off the road into the ditch, as though the car did it on its own. And, and so I said, well, where exactly? And he told me where he was, and so it's dark out, and I pull up behind him, and several of his friends are around his car, and they've been rocking it, trying to get him out. And his car, sure enough, is, is sitting like half in the ditch and half on the road, but they just couldn't get it back onto the road. Now, my car comes up behind him, and my headlights shine directly on my son, and he gets out of his car, and I get out of my car, and before I can even say a word to him, he's illuminated there in the headlights, and he says to me, Dad, what I'm about to say is not a lie. I'm telling you the truth. A monkey ran across the road in front of my car, and I said, really, Adam? January, Williamston, Michigan, a monkey, that's the best you can come up with. I'm telling you the truth, Dad. There was a monkey that went across the road in front of my car. Now, for the next three months, Adam became the butt of the joke in the family, right? Really? A monkey in Williamston, Michigan? 
Well, after that subsided, it occasionally popped up in our family and part of the jokes around the table at time. And Adam kept trying, every time it surfaced, he kept trying to convince us, I'm not lying to you. Well, it wasn't too long after he had that accident that I was reading the Williamston Enterprise, which was a, a newspaper in Williamston. They still circulate today. And there was a little story in there about a family who had lost their monkey. <laughs> no kidding. Now, I didn't tell him about that story in the paper. And Adam got married in his 20s and moved to South Carolina, serves on staff at a church down there. And a month ago, he was up here. And I said to him, Adam, did I ever tell you that there were multiple people and they actually ran a story in the newspaper about the monkey that you saw? No, see, I told you I was telling the truth. I wasn't lying to you. See, this is where Paul's coming from. He's got this kind of passion. I'm, I'm not lying, even though it sounds incredibly fabricated. So he starts out by saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ. This truth is stated in Jesus. There's a reason, New Hope, why we make why we make people take an oath when they go into the courtroom still to this day. I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In some courts, they still say, so help me God. He calls Jesus as his irrefutable witness. Jesus will testify to this. Paul often calls God as his witness. You see an example of that in Romans chapter 1. He says, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I pray for you. But he goes on in verse 1 to say, I'm not lying not just saying this for the sake of convenience. It strikes me that this union that Paul has with Jesus is actually the stream out of which flow all of his actions, all of his decisions, all of his thought, all of his conversation, because the Spirit absolutely dominates this guy. So he says, Jesus can validate my motives, and my motives are to reach culture, especially my own culture, his Jewish culture. So he says, my conscience testifies to this. So he calls his conscience as a witness, you see, in verse 1. And his conscience is clear. His conscience is really clear because he lives in complete obedience to God. Here's an example of that from 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. When your conscience is that clear, when these are your motives, you can think, you can speak, you can act boldly about the things of God. Every one of us who consider ourselves believers this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, all believers should be able to say without hesitation, God's word guides my actions. God's word, it guides my behavior. It's the very air that I breathe. You go back to 1540, one of the early fathers of church, of the modern church, Martin Luther, this is the way he said it, my conscience is captive to the word of God. See, a conscience that's surrendered to God's word, that's a conscience that's submissive to the Holy Spirit. And there's a result in that. When you and I obey the Spirit, we can trust our conscience. We can take confidence in it because it's under God's control. So that's where Paul's coming from on this. Now, there's an important reason for him activating all these witnesses. There's an important reason for him summoning this collection of Jesus will be my witness and my conscience is my witness. All these things, the Spirit is my witness because what he's about to say seems extremely exaggerated. But there's a real pain issue going on for him. 
And his pain is his nation has failed to accept Jesus, and it's crushing Paul. So he finishes verse 2 by saying, I've got great sorrow, and I've got unceasing grief over this issue. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Just so that you and I are on the same page about this word accursed that he's using here, there's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, and it's this word anathema. Maybe you've heard it used before. It's, it's littered throughout the New Testament in various places. This word anathema actually means to be actually banished, to be excommunicated from that which you were in contact with. So he's saying, I could be banished from Jesus. Now, the alternative is not good. If you're excommunicated from a relationship with Jesus, you see Paul using that exact same phrase in Galatians. This is a verse that I used back when I was teaching on false teachers and false teaching. You might be familiar with this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be anathema. This is a really strong word that Paul's using here. So he's kind of like Moses. He's saying, I'm willing to be cursed if it would mean that this whole nation, that it would save this culture. Just begin thinking about who you went to school with. Who's in your neighborhood? Who do you see in the workplace tomorrow? Who will you run into in your neighborhood this week? Who's in your own family? That's what Paul's thinking about right here. Because he knew If it wasn't for God's intervention, if it wasn't for God saving him, he'd still be an unbeliever. He'd still be throwing Christians in prison. So he's driven by this passion for his nation. So the first thing you find him doing every time he goes into a new city is reaching out to the Jewish believers, even though God sent him to the Gentiles. Watch Acts 9.19. Now for several days he was with the disciples. This is right after he came to Christ. He was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He said, that's Paul. He goes right to the Jews first. So catch the depth of what he's saying here. This is absolutely stunning, New Hope. I am willing to go to hell if it would mean that my friends would come to Christ. That causes me to recoil. I don't know about you, because I have to ask myself, is, is this true of me? We know that it's impossible for a believer to suffer this fate. Paul has just spent chapter 8 saying, nothing can separate you from the love of God. I got you. So he starts with the opening qualifier, I wish that I could. I wish that I could see my whole nation saved, that I could become accursed that I would be separated from Christ. So it's clear there's no reason to doubt the magnitude of his statement. He's saying, I'm willing to forfeit salvation if somehow that would save my friends and family from hell. What you're looking at here, church, is a completely honest heart. He's just putting himself on the table. This is not a theological statement. This is driven by emotion. So I'm asking you to ask yourself this emotional question right now. Maybe you've never asked this before. What am I willing to do to see my friends and family come to Christ? What am I willing to do to see them not go to hell? See, this isn't theological. This is emotional. 
And if you're tracking with the life change of Paul here, this is the guy who used to throw Christians in prison. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, and now he's doing exactly what Jesus did. He's willing to be banished, to die with the sin of the world on him, to go to hell. Is that not exactly the heart of God? who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, he paid the ultimate price. Paul's saying, I'm willing to pay the ultimate price. See, it's, it's precisely Paul's heart for lost people whom he loved that made him really, really powerful in the hands of God. So I'm going to challenge you to do something this morning before you leave the auditorium today, and I will pray with you this way before we end. But I want you to begin thinking about it in advance. Pray that God would give you the heart of an evangelist if you don't already have it. And the reason I say that you may have to pray for that is because it doesn't always come naturally. Some people in this auditorium have the gift, the spiritual gift of evangelism. And they can walk up to anybody and start a conversation. And all of a sudden you find it just instantly turning to the things of Christ. There was a guy that used to work here who passed away seven years ago. His name was Ron Volutis. And I went to Texas with Ron, and he had the gift of evangelism. And he and I were in Texas on, on this um, Bible study thing. We were doing some research, and we took a taxi cab to the airport. And the taxi stopped at another hotel to pick up some individuals who were going to the airport. And they climbed into the cab. These individuals got in. They sat next to Ron. And Ron said to them, good morning. And they said, good morning. And he said, where are you guys headed? And they said, well, we're flying back to Detroit this morning. And he said, excellent. Well, I'm glad you're having a good day. Where are you at in the things of Jesus? <laughs> what? And these guys are a little red in the eyes. They look like they've just woken up. He just instantly hit the issue head on and asked them if they had a church and where they lived in Michigan. And, and it was very easy for him to do. But most people would say, well, that's not so easy for me to do. I, I can't quite go there. So I'm encouraging you. You may have to chase after it. Because I will tell you, just being honest, Mark Kring, I had to. When we launched New Hope in 2007, I, I was of the mind that God wanted us to launch a Bible church for the purpose of helping Christians get strengthened in their faith and, and to be equipped and study the Bible. But I was kind of missing the component of evangelism. And so if you go back to the early teachings I did in the first couple of years, you almost never find me talking about the gospel. By the time we hit 2010, I was teaching the book of Revelation, right? We spent 43 weeks in that puppy. But you rarely ever found me talking about the gospel. And then God really began to push on my heart. You got all these people coming in, Mark, and they need to hear the gospel. It's not just about theology. So over the last seven, eight years, God has continued to push, and I begin pressing into God, saying, God, would you create or will you establish or will you grow in me the heart of an evangelist and I'm frankly I'm just I'm not that good at it but I'm growing in it and you may have to do that same thing ultimately church what you have to recognize is it starts with loving people because evangelism has little effect if we don't have love for the people who are lost and that's where I see Paul going with this is he's got an incredible love for people let me show you three quotes from some individuals who have died long before you ever walked this earth. But these particular individuals reflect this. They had to pray for the very thing we're talking about. John Knox, 1572, give me Scotland or I die. He was powerful 
a powerful witness for the kingdom in Scotland. Or David Brainerd, 1747, look at what he said about the United States. That I might burn out for God. Well, he did. He died in his early 30s. But there's rarely been an individual who was so powerfully used among the American native Indians. People who he recognized had no understanding or concept of who Jesus was. Or, or what about Henry Martin? Oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. You're looking at the prayers of these guys. God used him in Persia and in India. Where's God using you today? Where does he want to use you? In, in your workplace? Moses begged God. L look at this begging. In Exodus 32, I told you I'd come back to this. Exodus 32, 32. But now, if you will... Forgive their sin because the nation of Israel had drifted away from God. But look at the degree of his begging. And if not, please blot me out from your book. Really, Moses? From the book of life? Erase your name from the book of life? If God won't bring them into relationship, this is a heart that I want to have. Only the love of Jesus produces that kind of love. And now Paul's got another kind of pain going on here. It's not just the love pain for his family, the people he worked with, the people he went to school with. But he's got this pain over their unbelief that's got another root. There is this absurd inconsistency with the incredible blessings the nation of Israel has. And I want you to begin thinking of the United States right now. But in Paul's world, he's thinking of Israel, this absurd inconsistency with the enormous blessing that they have. And yet this disconnect with Jesus, that God has given them so much, and yet they have so little respect for the things of God. So Paul's driven to call them out. In verse 4, he very quickly does that. He says in verse 4, Who are the Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? If you've ever counted it before, he's listing seven things there. I'm not going to go into all of them with you. But I'm just going to call out a couple of them. Because he says there's this imbalance going on. It's complicated. Israel's unbelief is complex because they've got this personal connection with God. Their lineage, their heritage is in the things of God. And they've got this shockingly high status, which is imbalanced because they've rejected the very thing that God brought to them. So he calls them out and he says, you're the Israelites. You're the direct descendants of Abraham. And throughout history, Israel has definitely been set apart because they're so incredibly blessed by God. In the world of science, in the world of the arts, in finance, in business, in education, in politics, let alone militarily, they are a blessed people, would you agree? Incredibly blessed with a top heavy share of the world's geniuses. And the only nation in the world to know its past its present, and its future. We don't know the future of Canada. We don't know the future of Mexico or the United States in the last days. But we know the future of Israel because God wrote about it. They're the only nation to have ever existed to know their past, their present, and their future. And Paul goes on to say, point two, to whom belongs the adoption of sons? God commanded Moses to declare to the mightiest king on earth, to Pharaoh, say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
meaning they've been separated out. They've, they've been called to be a witness to the rest of the world. And then he says in point three, God revealed to them the Shekinah glory, the glory of the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And then when they built the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God between the wings of the cherubim over the top of the ark, God's glory revealed to them. And then they've got the covenants. The fourth thing he brings out is originally it was with Abraham and then through Moses and then through David, the everlasting covenant, a kingdom that will never end. And then the supreme covenant that Jesus talks about. This cup is the new covenant in my blood that is shed out for many. No other nation on earth has ever had the covenants. No aspect points to their uniqueness more than the covenants. And then here's the the last one I'll touch on right now, the giving of the law. Israel as a nation directly taught from God the Ten Commandments. And all the countless other standards, the the obeying of which and the modeling of them, if they honored God, would be a blessing to the entire world. God said, I'm going to bless the world through you. You're going to show them the way of prosperity. So Paul brings it into a landing now with verse 5. It's where we're going to end today. He throws something very subtle in there, but watch this. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? who is over all, God blessed forever. So from Israel, God raises up the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through these individuals, the foundations of all the blessings were laid. But then he throws this zinger in there. From whom is the Mashiach, the Christ, according to the flesh. And we need to bear down on that. Of all the nations, of all the billions of people on this planet right now, of all those that have gone before you, Israel alone, this little sliver of land in the Middle East, is blessed to provide the lineage of Christ Jesus. And in case you've never noticed it before, Jesus' birth in the Jewish line was not accidental. He wasn't accidentally born a Jew. It was ordained of God that he would be a biological flesh descendant of Abraham. And so for that reason, when you open up the Bible and you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew 1 starts out with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham through the line of Joseph and Joseph becoming the adoptive father of Jesus on this planet. And then when you open up the book of Luke, Luke begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, beginning with Abraham all the way down through Mary, his natural birth mother. It's not by accident that God did that. So by far, the greatest blessing of all for Israel, in which all the other blessings find their meaning, is that Jesus is born of them. So Messiah comes to this planet biologically from the Jews. But then Paul lays this one out there. That's from the human side, people. He says from the divine side, this same one is God himself. So he says it this way, who is over all, blessed God forever. If you've ever looked for direct evidence for authors writing that Jesus is God, you're looking at one of them. There's many of them, but this is one in which Paul goes out of his way to call Jesus God, Romans 9.5. Now, I've been mulling this passage over for weeks, and sometimes, months in advance, God will give me real clarity about how things are supposed to come together. Like Easter, we were working on that months in advance. 
And sometimes it's the week of that God gives me clarity on how I'm supposed to bring something to an ending. But you look at this passage in these first five verses, and it almost feels like a history lesson. And, and I'm begging God this last week, God, how, how am I supposed to bring application out of this history lesson? How do I apply this to our life? And sometimes God shows it to me on Wednesday and Thursday, and sometimes he shows me at 4.12 in the afternoon on Saturday when you're desperately realizing, man, I'm going to teach the Saturday night service in an hour and a half. Here's what God made really, really clear to me yesterday afternoon. Generally, it's thought among humans that we're carrying out an act of love when we conceal truth, which will cause people pain. So if we've got a friend or somebody that we're in relationship with and we know something that's really, really hard, we may filter the truth, not putting the whole thing out there because we're afraid of what it might cause them, the pain that they might feel or how they might react. But as you see, as you read the Bible, true love is motivated by declaration of truth, truth that is really crucial even when it's hard to hear. So God says things like, speak the truth, but speak it in love. Say hard things, but say it in a loving way. So here's the loving way. If one soul on this planet is of such high value that Jesus would say things, what good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? You'd have to say a soul is pretty valuable. If the whole world could not compensate, and I'm talking about the wealth of this entire planet, could not compensate for the value of one of your friend's souls, how does God look at that soul? If one soul is of such high value, how shocking is it that the thought that millions upon millions upon millions are going to hell? I end this with a quote from Charles Simeon. And many of you know that he's one of my favorite authors. This is from 1833. He's looking at the same passage, and this is what he said. Surely we have need to blush and be ashamed, every one of us. Had we seen a vessel wrecked and all the crew perishing in the ocean, there is not one amongst us so inhuman, but he would be filled with the tenderest concern for them and exert himself to the uttermost, if by any means he might save some of them. But we have seen millions of people perishing forever and have had the means of saving them within our own reach and yet have made no efforts for their welfare, nor felt a pang on account of their destruction. I think Charles is putting himself in that mix. He says, who is there among us? We should be blushing ourselves. We should be embarrassed. I think he's looping himself into that, because we would all admit we, we could do better. So who among us, if we were to appeal to God with a Paul appeal, who of us could say it in truth? Oh, my God. If necessary, send me to hell so that you would save my brother. Who, who among us would do that? 
And yet we see Paul calling Jesus as his witness, saying, this is how much passion I have. This is how much I hurt. The burden is too heavy for me. I find no rest. So I'm asking myself this question this week, New Hope, that I'm asking of you. Is this true of me? Can I say that and not lie? God, that you would raise up that passion. So that's why I say you may have to chase after it. You may have to seek after it. You may have to beg God to grow that evangelistic spirit in you. And I want to pray with you right now that way for those whom you know and those who were here last week that God would help us to do this more fully. Let's, let's join together in prayer. I know we feel the weight of this, Father. I, I sense it in the room, and I can feel the presence of your Spirit. These are the very things that drove Jesus to the cross, and we dare not take it lightly. So I'm pleading with you, Father, as, as we get ready to move to a new facility, a bigger building, and more people coming in the door, that as a church, as a core, God, that we would not lose sight of your passion for people who do not know you. But that's us as a, as a church corporately, Father, and I pray for us individually, for individuals whom we'll talk to this week on the street. Perhaps, God, that even this month, maybe this year, you would use us to draw someone into relationship with you or maybe multiple individuals. God, that you would point to new hope as a church that's passionate about seeing people who don't know Jesus spared from hell. Grow that in us, Father. Increase our passion. Father, I thank you for these individuals who have taken this time to be here. For those who are watching online right now, and the intensity of this moment and the somberness of it, we don't want it to escape, yet at the same time, we recognize we have to take on our day. So in the midst of that, we pray that you would work through us, make us bold for the name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.